Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Kaelin McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first Mark Dunley talks with Dave Gruber about a proposed solar farm in Columbia County. Then Bria Barthel heads to the bookhouse to get some cookbook suggestions. Mm-mm-mm. Later on, Amy Halloran joins us to share an upcoming project coming to Troy, where she'll collect food memories. And after that, we take a look back at Dulcinea Diggs' interview with comedian and scientist Ben Miller. And finally, Tom Francis talks with Don Maurer to, on Talking with Poets. But first, here are your headlines. Michael Giovannone, the landlord who was ordered by the state attorney general to stop harassing tenants at his Saratoga Lakeview mobile home park, was unsuccessful in court this week in his effort to evict a resident by refusing to cash her rent payments. Only two tenants are still left at the site. Student was arrested on Monday after a knife fight at Albany High School. No one was injured. The Times Union reports that hospital leaders are sounding the alarm over what they describe as a severe health care workforce shortage in upstate New York. Hospital representatives were at the state capitol on Monday calling for a permanent funding stream to assist hospitals with recruitment and retention, increased investment in workforce training programs, and higher Medicaid reimbursement rates. The Red Cross is helping multiple people who are displaced by a fire at a home on 4th Street in Troy on Monday night. Several dozen political science students at the College of St. Rose protested the college's closure on Monday, seeking more transparency from the college's board of trustees. Angela Ledford, a professor of polytheory, said, I think that there's been several administrations that have been marked by mismanagement and an ongoing lack of transparency. More than 500 students and staff voiced their displeasure with the administration at the hastily organized meeting by the college on Friday. The city of Troy recently launched a new tourism campaign, Troy Has It. The campaign is highlighting Troy's diverse culture, food, and historical attractions. The Gazette reports that a former employee of the Glenville Highway Department is suing the town, claiming he was fired for reporting harassment that included homophobic slurs and being required to pick up tissues used by his alleged abuser to masturbate. The Times Union is reporting a box truck carrying natural gas cylinders on I-88 crashed earlier Tuesday after rolling down an embankment. Some of the gas escaped, leaving a strong odor. All lanes of Interstate I-88 between exit 24 and 25 remained closed at the time of airing. This dr- driver was believed to be in critical condition and is taken and taken to a nearby hospital. Check 511ny.org or call the 511 hotline for updates. And that's it for your headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390.
So first story, the Shepherds Run Solar Farm proposal in Columbia County, initially proposed in 2017, is expected to include 220 acres of panels and provide enough electricity for 15,000 homes. David Grubin of the Third Act talks with Mark Dunley about why the solar project is important to the efforts to control global warming. We're talking with David Grubin, who is a member of Third Act down in uh, Hillsdale there in Columbia County. And since 2017, there's been a proposal called uh, Shepherd's Run um, to build solar farm on 220 acres and has run into a lot of opposition. So, so, so David, maybe you explain, you know, what is this proposal and um, why hasn't it gone through after six years? And that is a very good question, and I'm surprised myself. It's a 60-megawatt solar farm on 220 acres, the town of Copake, Columbia County. So we're maybe an hour or so from Albany, and it's expected to generate every year enough electricity to meet the average annual consumption of over 15,000 New York households. Sounds like a good thing. So why has it been opposed by the entire town board of Copake and a well-organized, well-funded opposition, which have, have been flooding the community with streams of misinformation? You know, they, they say things like solar panels will pollute the water. Hmm. Uh, solar batteries will explode. Uh, Shepherd's Run doesn't have any batteries. Uh, Shepherd's Run will take up prime agricultural farmland when, in fact, it's cited on worn-out agricultural land that's being used to graze cattle, and it'll occupy less than 1% of the town of Cope. So we got more wire people opposed to this. Well, you know, first of all, I think there is something about change that people just, it's hard for them to get used to it. They, they you know, it's hard, it's hard for people to project uh, into the future and what climate change is going to mean to them. And uh, it's easy. People are easily uh, susceptible to to misinformation. And uh, we've formed a group of friends and neighbors in support of, of Shepherd's Run. And uh, I, I, th I think we're going to make it. I think it's going to get through. Now, I remember a couple of years ago, because it was taking up to 10 years to build uh, solar and wind farms in New York State. And that's one of the reasons why New York had been a, really very far behind uh, the curve on this. I think at one point a couple of years ago, they might have 5% of the electricity in the state coming from, from wind or solar. So the, the, the governor set up this uh, Office of Renewable Energy to try to cut down the review process from 10 years to maybe two or three years, uh, You know, especially in a moment when um, there's probably <laughs> maybe a year or two left before we go above 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is the target for global warming. It used to be five years, but now they're saying 1.5 years. Has the Office of Renewable Energy site in been able to help, you know, maybe expedite this process a bit? Yeah, well, thank goodness for this uh, New York State climate law and for the rigorous review system that's under the Office of Renewable Energy siting. Um, as you know, the state passed this law and set up the ORES, O-R-E-S, uh, ORES, they call it, uh, to review the environmental and other impacts of any uh, renewable project. 
because it was taking so long uh, for the towns to do it because the town would always say, uh, well, you know, let's put it in another town. So now Ores can override the town's decision based on their own review, including the environmental impacts in, in, in a lot of them. And they've been very careful. They've turned down the application for Shepherd's Run three times, which is terrific because it means that they've really, you know, they've really got to do it right, uh, the developer of the, of the solar farm. And finally, they've issued a draft permit in August. And, and now there is a year of public comment, which is kind of amazing. They've really been careful, Ores, uh, because they 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 know that the the uh, that many towns like uh Copake are are opposed to any any kind of renewable, and uh, so they're 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 doing everything they can now. It's a chance to make a public comment, uh, but they're going to issue that final permit if all if everything uh, if everything continues to be in line. Now, I actually you know had read a couple of years ago that you know a, a group of citizens had come together. And, you know, they, they said they had listened to, you know, some of the opposition um, and had, you know, tried to strive to, uh, you know, develop a compromise. But uh, uh, apparently that initial optimism that they were coming to resolution on in terms of local opposition didn't materialize. You know, I thought that the uh, th this this whole issue was going to be solved when the opposition came together with our group and Sina uh, Katzen and uh, Columbia Land Conservancy and all got together and said, okay, how can we make a renewable project benefit the town of Cope? Which means, yes, we will have this renewable project and yes, it will benefit Cope. And they drew up a list of, of uh, and it was called the working group drew up a list of benefits, including the tax benefits that'll come, something like five to seven million dollars, uh, uh, community gardens around the renewable site, uh, agrivoltaics, which is has to do with grazing uh, um, sheep or, or cattle underneath the 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 uh, the solar panels, uh, an extension of uh, of the uh, rail trail, which is a wonderful uh, amenity here a number of things and what has to happen is for the town now to sit down and negotiate these things with the developer and and and, and you have what's called a host benefit agreement so it's now a contract well the developer has agreed to most of these things they've agreed to the agrivoltaics, and they've agreed to the community gardens and the tax benefits, et cetera. But the town won't negotiate. The town is in this position of saying, no, I, I, it's hard to understand why they won't negotiate this agreement at this point, because it's in their benefit. It looks like the, the uh, ORIS is going to approve this. And if the town doesn't negotiate an agreement, then the developer, there's nothing that holds a developer to fulfill its promise. Now, you mentioned, or I mentioned that you were part of uh, the Third Act. We've had Third Act on previously. Um, but for listeners who may not remember the last um, episode, what what is Third Act? Right. Well, one thing is uh, Third Act is meant to be the 
third act for uh, anyone over 60. Now, we're not looking at uh, birth certificates, and you can join if you're 50. <laughs> but it's designed for those of us who are over 60 who want to work on something that's meaningful and significant at this time in their lives. Uh, and in, in this case, it's an opportunity to work on climate issues and, and to support renewables. Uh, it, it's a real uh, ch chance to work toward democracy in action, signing up, getting people to vote. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a wonderful organization that's all over New York State. Uh, and not only all over New York State, I'm a member of the New York State uh, group, upstate New York, there's a downstate New York, and every Every state in the country in the country now is organizing a third act so that older people can work with, let's say, their experience. And I, I, we'd, we'd like to think our, our wisdom from years of, of being alive to, to, to help us solve this uh, climate, climate crisis and to work alongside of younger people uh, and lend our support to all the amazing things that young people are doing. Uh, in, in, in well, well, David, we only have a minute left. So oh, if, people, if people want to express their opinion, uh, I, I, I believe the uh, Office of Renewable Energy side and is taking public comments. How can people let the, the office know, you know, what they would like to see with this project? What's amazing is Ores wants you to hear from, from you. They want to hear what you think of Shepherd's Run, and you can go to their site and post a written comment. You can actually appear at a public hearing in Copake or appear virtually, but for most people, it's easiest to write a public comment to Ores and let them know that you support Shepherd's Run. And they have a website? Well, people should just Google it, Office of Renewable Energy site in. And I imagine Friends of Columbia Solar also have a website, FOCS? Yes, yes, Columbia Solar, yes. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with David Rubin, uh, a member of the uh, Third Act. We've been talking about the... Uh, Shepherd's Run uh, project down in Cobag in Columbia County. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We will continue to report on the progress of Shepherd's Run solar farm proposal with any future developments. And for the foodies out there, this next story brings us to the Bookhouse in Stuyvesant Plaza, where Bria Barthel delivers a list of cookbooks just in time for the holiday season. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm back once again at the Bookhouse of Stuyvesant Plaza to get some book recommendations from Cheryl McKeown, the manager of the Bookhouse. This is a segment for people who love to cook or who eat. So Cheryl, what's your first book? Thanks, Bria. It's always fun to have you here. And being the holidays, it just seemed like cookbooks were the way to go because not only are they fun to buy for yourself and use to entertain your family and friends with good food, but to buy as gifts. So we have quite a selection of our usual cookbooks plus a lot of releases for the holiday season. So I thought I'd start with literal big books. One of them is new, one of them is not. The first one is the America's Test Kitchen which spans the uh, recipes from the TV program from 2001 through 2024. They're looking ahead. 
huge. It's a huge cookbook. But as you know, if you're a cook, America's Test Kitchen will tell you everything you need to know in a beautiful and entertaining cookbook. This one is about two inches thick. Terrific gift, terrific for your own kitchen. The other one that I have uh, perennially for the last four or five years recommended and used is The Food Lab by J. Kenzie Lopez-Alt. And this is the one that if you you want to make gingerbread but you've never made it from scratch, go to this book and you will find four versions of gingerbread. What's good about one? What's good about the other? And this goes on and on. Gravy, mashed potatoes. Um, you can see where my head is. All the information you need from an analytical perspective, but lots of fun. It also has received a James Beard Award. If you only have one cookbook in your kitchen, this could be it. I would highly recommend the Food Lab. So gravy and mashed potatoes, this couldn't have anything to do with it's a couple days after Thanksgiving, could it? Well, we are thinking cookbooks, and therefore we are thinking food. This is true. A new big book this year is Start Here. This is one that's been on a lot of best-of lists. The author is a young woman, Solah El Walili. I'm sorry, Walili, I'm going to say. Probably wrong, but you'll be able to correct me because you can go to um, the Internet and find lots of references and appearances by her. But Start Here, again, is one that has lots of basic information, but also unique cookbooks. She has a global perspective in her recipes. A great gift, especially for a younger person. So it has uh, recipes from a variety of cultures or nations? Yes, yes. Uh, so it's a little, a little unusual. Unique, I should say. So my next category is a short one, but I want to uh, talk about the World Central Kitchen Cookbook. As you know, if you uh, are in the world at all, Jose Andres is the head of the World Central Kitchen. He's a renowned chef. His uh, restaurants in the United States are, are uh, beloved, but his mission in life is to basically to feed the world. He goes into places that have had strife. He is in the Middle East right now with his people, and they feed they feed the starving, basically. I can't say much more without getting uh, kind of reclamped about this, but uh, the new book, Jose Andres, World Central Kitchen, all the proceeds will go to his work. Book House of Cyrus and Plaza is donating a percentage of our sales to World Central Kitchen. So there's so much good about this book. And I was impressed that they not only go around the world, but they go to places here in the U.S. also. I was in Buffalo just a couple of weeks after the terrible mass shootings at the supermarket there, and World Central Kitchen had indeed set up a tent that would not take donations on site. They said that they welcome donations, but they don't do it on site. They focus on the food. They also have a nice uh, policy of hiring local people and using local sources for the food so that they don't just come in with their own stuff, but it, it's an economic boost for the region also. Great organization. How could you not buy the World Central Kitchen Cookbook? Thank you, Bria. I thought then we'd go coast to coast. We have a wonderful selection of, of not only global, but um, American cookbooks. And I want to start in Maine with Aaron French's new cookbook, Big Heart Little Stove. Huge, huge uh, book this season. Uh, you may know that her uh, restaurant... And when she says huge, she doesn't mean it's another two-incher. It's only about an inch and a half. Yes, yes. It's a manageable size cookbook. Ina Garten is a huge fan of Aaron French. If that does have some influence. Her restaurant in Freedom, Maine, the last, the Lost Kitchen, is one that takes reservations, and the way they do it is you have to send postcards, and if your postcard is drawn, she contacts you, and you get a seat. 
we've had people in here looking for the, the prettiest postcards that we have to try to get a seat at um, Lost Kitchen. Lovely cookbook, um, and she's just a lot of fun. Then traveling south, we have the Gula Geechee Home Cooking Cookbook. That is uh, written about the recipes of an 89-year-old cook on Edish Island, which is just off of South Carolina. It's much more than grits, a wonderful, wonderful southern recipe collection. Now we're going to zip all the way to California and talk about Erin Gleason's Forest Feast. Her newest one is Forest Feast Road Trip, which is beautiful, beautiful pictures of um, recipes from along the California coast. All of her cookbooks are California-centric. None of them require that you live in or near California. We use this cookbook here in Albany all the time. Um, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful layout in that one side is a uh, picture and the other side is ingredients and directions. Very easy to use and just a fun, beautiful book. The name of the series is Forest Feast. Does this have foraging aspects to it? Not really foraging. They do live uh, among the redwoods in central California, and so a lot of the pictures are from the forests and you know the beautiful green uh, regions in uh, that part of, of the United States. But uh, I don't think there's any real foraging. It's more like foraging in her kitchen. Uh, very accessible. Also very family-friendly recipes. One more that is zipping back to New England. We can't leave without talking about Blueberries for Sal cookbook. This is a little tiny cookbook full of recipes that feature blueberries, and it's based upon the classic Blueberries for Sal picture book. It's just a wonderful book. And that's Blueberries for Sal, S-A-L, not Sal. Blueberries for Sal, the little girl who goes foraging with her mom, speaking of foraging. I'm going to end with a book that people are surprised that I love, but here we go. It is Goon with the Spoon by <laughs> Snoop Dogg and Earl E. Forty Stevens. Successful, popular rappers from the Bay Area of California and food aficionados. Successful food entrepreneurs and recipe creators. It is so much fun. Where else are you going to find Frito Pie and Nana Bread by Snoop Dogg himself. This is Snoop's second cookbook. Gorgeous. So much fun. I can't imagine you don't have somebody on your list who would love it. And if you don't, buy it for yourself. Flamin' Hot Cheetos Mac and Cheese Bites. Doesn't get any spicier. Enjoy. Happy holidays. And thank you. Those are wonderful. I'm not even going to try to do a list of, of all those books. Look on our website and listen to the segment, and you can rewind as you want. There will be a list of authors and titles in the segment description. Now, we're here at the Bookhouse, and it is one of the independent bookstores in the area. Well, it's a chain because there's also one in Troy called Market Block Books. Cheryl, what are the advantages of people shopping in independent bookstores rather than going to the big boxes, which I shall not name? Customers actually do say this, so I'm not just saying it about ourselves, but a customer came in, well, it happens all the time. You get personal service, and you really do get personal service. If you come in and ask a staff person here um, at Bookhouse, I need something for a 25-year-old niece, 
I might answer the question, but I'm more likely to turn to one of my colleagues and say, she's really close to your age. Why don't you take this one? And someone will help you who really has knowledge about that. I like to bump people out of the way when, when, I'm asked, when someone's asked about book clubs or cookbooks. But it's personalization. It's also, of course, economic. I think it's $67 of, your, uh, of every $100 spent at a local goes to the local economy. So we're talking the tax base, which of course benefits us all. We're talking um, the donations we make to schools. We're talking employment of the staff members of any independent. But an independent bookstore, you know that you are really part of the community. We also uh, do donate as we can. Grassroot Givers, for example, is uh, having a book drive for the children of the Capital District. If you come in and buy a book, you get a 20% discount, and we'll put it in the stack, and it will be donated to children, and that's through Grassroot Givers. And another activity that they're involved with the community is most of the month of December, they're doing gift wrapping for a donation to the food pantries. And I know this well because I'm one of the volunteer gift wrappers. So Cheryl, on behalf of uh, Food Pantries for the Capital District, thank you and thank the Book House for giving us this opportunity to be here. And again, that was Cheryl McKeown, the manager of the Book House of Stuyvesant Plaza. Thanks. Have a happy holiday and do come on down. All those cookbooks are making me hungry. Find the names to all those books mentioned in the description to this story at our website, mediasanctuary.org. We'll continue this topic of food and our memories around it after the break. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Kaylin McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend or anyone who you think might enjoy these stories. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Saturday, December 16th at the Troy's Farmer's Market, there'll be a booth for people to share their food memories. Amy Halloran, writer and change agent and the author of The New Bread Basket, is the creator of the booth. And she joins us now to tell us a bit more about this project. Welcome back to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Let's begin a little bit with your background uh, and your interest in food. How did you come to this spot of your work? Well, I've always been a baker and I, um, I'm also a writer. And so as a, as a writer, I decided I would not earn my living by writing, but through food. So I, um, I've been focused on food writing for a long time now, and I ran the farmer's market in Troy, and that really led me into wanting to tell the stories of people who make our food. Um, I realized that we just don't know enough about where our food comes from, and I set out on a mission to do that, and here I am. 
And how does that relate to the project that you're bringing to the mm-hmm. Troy Farmers Market on December 16th? So since I spend a lot of time writing and thinking about the emotional, ev- of the evocative powers of food, I wanted to invite people into this. Um, everyone has the capacity to connect to food as an individual and to each other. And so food is this incredible, potent thing that we all do together, but individually. And I wanted to, um, I got curious about tapping into this, this personal public space as I've been researching my next book, which is about the local history of factory bread. Um, So it's not, is it the taste that we remember of Fryhofer's bread, those of us who grew up around here, or is it the, the so many cultural and community facts, like people just a generation older than me remember Freddie Fryhofer's birthday, or Freddie Fryhofer's TV show and getting to be on it on your birthday. And it was, it was really a why. Yeah, hmm. it's, it was a real thing. I remember Fryhofer's as a place and I could smell the bakery. I grew up right around the corner from the sanctuary till I was six and I could smell that bread baking. Um, and it really fixed in my mind, you know, the smell of home. So with this project, I'm inviting people to dig into their own food memories. I have worksheets for people to do right there or elsewhere. I also have a virtual food memory box where I'm inviting people to think about different specific aspects of food. They're writing prompts to just get people rolling. Um, My purpose is not to create a product, but to create engagement and get people connected to their own feelings and thinking and memories and maybe share them with each other. I've been doing this for about a month now on and off in different places. Uh, I handed out a lot of sheets before Thanksgiving and suggested people sit sit with their families and think about the food in another way if they wanted. Um, It's, it's been a really great fun thing to do. So when you go to these things, um, what are, are there specific things you're looking for? And then what are some common stories that you're hearing? Well, since I'm, you know, I, uh, I'm hearing a lot about bread because bread is my, uh, my basic. Um, but people, so people are remembering their sandwiches or talking about the bread that they eat now is very different from the bread that they grew up with. They might've grown up with some kind of uh, wonder bread, but now they prefer something like the Placid Baker or make their own sourdough bread. Um, So things like that. Uh, One question that I'm asking people is to think about watching someone cook and, you know, what are they doing with their hands? What's on the counter? And so I get very personal memories of of what folks have experienced those are a couple of things and i'll be doing this again at the farmer's market on saturday 
December 16th. Um, I'll also be handing out a food memory box zine that I've put together. It has an essay that I wrote about the local history of factory bread and a few recipes. I uh, revived a recipe for hermit cookies, which Fryhoffers used to make here. But as Fryhoffers was bought, um, you know, by other companies nationally and then internationally, it got rid of a few key recipes. And one of them, I uh, helped uh, worked with the Placid Baker to figure out a, you know, a, an echo of that is the hermit cookies. So these are a molasses, a chewy molasses cookie that are come in a bar with raisins. And um, kids who don't like raisins are willing to eat these cookies. So people can get recipes for those as well as um, some oatmeal bread, which is kind of like Fryhofer's, but different. And all of this work is possible because I got a grant through the Troy Waterfront Farmers Market and um, to explore these food memory ideas. And it was granted by the Art Center and um, the New York State Council on the Arts. So I'm very grateful to have um, funding to, to get to help people think about food. Since you mentioned bread, it's very interesting because often bread can't travel very far because it is very fresh. So it's very regionally specific. Mm -hmm. I know for my German family, bread is like a love language. And um, uh, so when you collect these stories, you mentioned that it's not about the product, but will anything come out from these collections of stories? They are they may turn into an audio project with my friend, Justin Baker, who has um, an, a podcast called Art Town. And I think we'll do an episode called Food Town, where I'll talk about the project and read um, some, of, some of what people have written. And, and if people want to um, read their own work, they've indicated that and I can get in touch with them. So that's the closest thing to a product. Yeah. So why does food uh, trigger memories? Do you think it's such a, it's such a powerful memory uh, aspect of our memory. So what is it about it and how important is food to our memory bank? So I think it's partially because of the sense of smell and that goes to the oldest part of our brain. The, the memories that are formed by smell, they go straight back. Um, they don't have to go through words or other things. So smell and food. I also think um, sometimes I think, my gosh, we're doing this thing with our bodies in public. It's a very, very intimate thing to eat. We're putting things in our mouths. We're yes. putting things, you know, we, yeah. sometimes we're feeding each other literally with our hands. It's so, it's so intimate. And I don't think we celebrate that uh, quality of it enough that this, we're meant to connect with each other. We're meant to, it's not just about sitting around the table, but it's about literally feeding each other. And food is, is a conduit for the ways that we care um, 
sometimes I think that that gets a little abused. You know, we we try to use food as a shorthand to make caring um, visible, and we're kind of really skirting from the actual work. But it is a super potent tool that we have at our disposal. So. I have so many good memories around food, you know, working in the ki- cooking in the kitchen with my mother around holidays or stuff or when family came into town. Do you have a specific food memory that you can share with us or a food memory that you've heard from somebody else? Well, I was just making Buckeyes with my mom. My mom is getting ready for a bake sale at the uh, place where she lives now. And so we made Buckeyes, which are these peanut butter balls that you, you wrap with, um, you dip in chocolate. And it was, it was really funny to be making them because we didn't make them frequently. They were what another, her, her uncle, I mean, my uncle's family would bring to us. So we always looked forward to these things. So it was very strange to be making these things, you know, kind of like putting a favorite record on the record player, but you're doing it in a totally different way. And I love that you can do that, fiddle around with recipes and, and travel down highways. Amy Halloran, what a pleasure. This, uh, memory booth around food on Saturday, December 16th at the Troy Farmer's Market sounds like something I'll, I'll stop by and uh, just what a great idea. And also just um, you have been a really core part of Kitchen Sanctuary and our food culture around the sanctuary. So um, I know you're really um, revered around Troy for your food knowledge. So thanks for joining us. No, oh, thanks for having me. I love the chance to chat. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Ben Miller, a scientist turned comedian, discusses the transitioning from science teacher to comedian. He found his love for comedy and more. He was interviewed by correspondent Dawson Hia Diggs from this interview from our archives. Ben is a retired school science teacher turned comedian from New York City. Miller is here today to discuss his transition and how he incorporates science into his comedy skits. Please welcome my guest, Ben Miller. How are you doing today? Good. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming. So, um, you know, you are a lover of science and with a degree in material science and engineering. What exactly made you want to study material science? Yeah, so it all started back in uh, middle school. So I grew up in Illinois and Northwestern during the summer had some like science programs for kids. And so I I took one called like Intro to Nanotechnology. And it was a really cool program where we learned a bunch of awesome science. We like built like a solar panel and stuff. And we got to play with a scanning electron microscope that I was just like absolutely enamored by. And at the end of the course, I, I went up to one of the instructors who's like a grad student and I was like, how do I do this? Like, how do I study nanotechnology? And he's like, well, you can't actually study nanotechnology, but my degree's in material science and engineering. And so from that, that was like absolutely it. That was the thing that I was going to do. So that's how I got into it. Okay. And so, you know, so you're more in 
engrossed in the science field, were you ever interested in computers at some point? Uh, computers are uh, cool and also very scary. <laughs> I took like a, uh, for engineering school, they make you take like an intro coding class and I was mm -hmm. awful at it. I had no ability. Like there's something in coding called like a, like a loop where you write like a couple lines of code and then it will like iterate over the same thing over and over again. But I could not figure out how to write a loop. So instead, um, which would have taken maybe like five or six lines of code, I had to like manually copy and paste and I turned in a 276 page assignment. Uh, yeah. All right. So, but, you know, we all have our sticks, right? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Computer's not quite for me. You said, you know, the nano, the nanotech science camp was allowed you to, you know, basically understand science and want to just do it for the rest of your life. So, you know, you are a retired science teacher, from my understanding. And so what made you leave the science yeah. field? Uh, gosh, the, that's a complicated question. I guess a couple of things. So nothing against science. Uh, I, have, I have a deep love of it. I uh, think that, that it's wonderful. But I, I also yeah started doing comedy like halfway through college and really fell in love with it and it sort of got to the point where like I couldn't really pursue both of them to the fullest like in, in order to get like your PhD in science like grad school you're putting in like 70 80 hours a week like it takes up all of your life um, and then comedy similarly is a thing where you have to devote hours and hours you're going at it non-stop so I decided to like as much as I love science, comedy is more fun. So decided to, to pursue that instead. Okay, okay. So what was your first experience in performing stand-up comedy? Uh, gosh. Well, technically my, my first experience was uh, in high school, actually. Um, it, yeah, I think it was maybe like 16 at some like, bar in Chicago that somehow I, I convinced my dad to take me to. My dad's, uh, he's like 50 years older than me. So it was just very weird to like the, this old man and this young boy and everyone's just like making fun of us. Like, is this old man like kidnapping this child? What's going on? Like everyone was just like roasting us the entire like two hour open mic. And then I, I went up and I, I, I bombed um, very badly in front of everybody and then did not do stand up comedy for another four years. <laughs> So, yeah, and then after the four-year hiatus, I got maybe a little bit better or at least less disheartened by it. So what made you get back on stage then? I had like a, a pretty bad uh, lab experience somewhere after my sophomore year. And so, yeah, comedy was a thing like, yeah, I, I thought about it for a while. I tried when I was a teenager and I was like, why am I like, just thinking about this thing, I should be doing this thing if I'm actually interested in it and stuck with it and never look back. Well, kudos to you. I hear you 100%. It's from my understanding, you used to work on a science bus. What is that for those who may not know? Oh, for sure. I'd never heard of it until I applied for the job. Uh, so it, it's an organization called BioBus, this really cool nonprofit in New York. And what they did is they took a school bus, like ripped out all the seats, put in a bunch of microscopes, and they teach science classes to underfunded schools around New York. Um, so 
Yeah, yeah. So they started out as they had like one bus. It was like an old school bus from like San Francisco in the 70s, I believe. And they had a second like quote unquote bus, which was actually just like a 34 foot Airstream trailer that was um, yeah driven by like a, a pickup truck. And so I was brought on as the lab manager for the Airstream trailer. And then also I, I taught some science classes as well when they needed people to fill in. I guess another real big question is, you know, you were in the science field for so long, but you know, your parents, your father, he seemed to support your journey into comedy. So my next question is, what was his reaction um, when you told him you were leaving the STEM field? Yeah, so he, he, he he's definitely been um, very supportive, which has been very nice. Uh, I think it took my mother uh, a little bit longer to come around, but she is also now fully supportive, which is very nice. Uh, yeah, very happy to, to have the, the support of my parents. Um, yeah, which was definitely not uh, always something that exists in the comedy field. Um, okay, so um, when you and I were trying to set this up, it was my understanding you were not in the United States. So what was it like being on tour and how do the people differ when it comes to the kind of jokes they want to hear or that you even tell? So I think it was a little bit easier this time because I went to the UK actually in August for the first time. I did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So I was there for like an entire month. And then I was able to figure out like, I mean, there were some like obvious things for I'll change like Fahrenheit to Celsius for them. Um, or there are like a couple more like subtle things that I slowly realized that like I have like a brief reference to like Alex Trebek, which they don't know who Alex Trebek is over there. Um, but then I have also have a reference to Spike Lee and they do seem to know Spike Lee over there. So it's figuring out like what celebrities translate across the pond. Um, yeah, so it's definitely like a, a little bit easier this time having previously been over there. Okay, and have you ever told jokes in another language? Have you attempted that? Oh gosh, so I I used to years ago um, run shows in the basement of a hostel in Queens. Um, so it was a yeah, it was a very interesting, just like rotating group of people from all sorts of foreign countries um, with varying levels of English comprehension. Um, and occasionally there were groups of um, very rowdy French teenagers who um, did not seem to understand or want comedy, uh, which is fair, the, no, uh, no judgment on them. Uh, yeah, but it did take like a couple years of French in high school. So I feel like I'm sure at one point I did attempt to like translate word for word the jokes into French, um, but it's hard to tell if like my translation was bad because I have very minimal French abilities or just um, these were French kids with attitude. Uh, yeah, so the answer is it didn't okay, go well okay, and I've never okay. attempted since. Um, did, I, did it hurt to ask? Okay, so um, <laughs> what is your thought process when crafting <laughs> a joke? You know, as someone who's been in, you know, uh, in the science field for so long, um, do you take a scientific method approach to it or how does it work for you? Yeah, I think definitely sometimes I, I take a scientific approach in potentially a couple ways. I mean, I think all comedians maybe do this. This probably isn't unique to the sciences as far as like they'll like 
write a little bit, they'll get up on stage, they'll test that out, they'll potentially, where I differ sometimes if I'm like trying to write a joke about a topic is I'll do like way too much um, online research about that topic and start reading like papers on it, like academic papers, uh, which I can't imagine other scientists are doing. And oftentimes is not really helpful for the joke. It's maybe just like four hours of internet procrastination. All right. Do you have any final words for my listeners? Wednesday, July 12th at the Madison Theater in Albany at 7.30 p.m. Yeah, tickets are available on, on my website, www.benmillercomedy.com. Thanks for interviewing me. Thanks for listening to the people at home. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, well, there you have it, everyone. Ben Miller, science teacher turned comedian. Ah, well, that is an older interview from our archives, so that performance is not taking place this weekend, but it's always good to hear what the comedians have to offer around here. Speaking of arts, this week on Talking with Poets, Tom Francis introduces us to Don Maurer, who read his work at the Poetic License Albany Poetry Reading and Open Mic at the Fish Market in Troy on November 13th, 2023. Ekphrastic art is defined as the response of an artist in one medium to the work of art by an artist in another medium. Its common manifestation is in poetry written about visual art, like paintings, photographs, drawings, and sculpture. Poetic License Albany is a project that turns that around, giving local visual artists an opportunity to respond to the work of local poets. Inspired by last year's overwhelming success, the Hudson Valley Writers Guild and the Upstate Artists Guild are excited to work together again this year to present this opportunity for collaboration between poets and visual artists in the Capital District. This year, the organizations presented the exhibit on both sides of the Hudson River, at the Fish Market in Troy and at the Honest Wade Food Co-op in Albany. Today, we're going to hear from local poet Don Marar, who read his poetry at the Fish Market in downtown Troy on November 13th, 2023, as part of the Poetic License Albany Poetry Reading and Open Mic Night, hosted by Mary Panza. Well, this has been fun so far. <laughs> um, I'm thrilled to be here, I, I, really, and to have my work shown and to have the opportunity to write a poem and uh, hand it to an artist and have that artist come back and say, this is what I saw. That's a trip. So, I'm a master gardener, so I tend to think in gardening terms. The name of the poem is Unnatural Acts. The first one is Espelier. Nature made the apple round, yet here I grow crucified against a wall, 
My favorite branch is bound to grow, just so. My leaves, my fruits, my limbs, designed to please the eyes of passerbys. Topiary. Boxwood bright, tight, green, trimmed, tortured, sculpted, shaped by steel, a clip, a snip, recreated, reshaped, redefined. What's your wish, your vision for me? Am I a box, a hedge, or God forbid, a corkscrew? Call me clay, Mr. Malleable. But oh, how I long for thorns. Bonsai, I'm your pampered trophy, twisted, showing your mastery of my nature. Hmm. If you've ever been to Cape Cod, the elbow is Nosset Beach. This is where the, storm, where the storms and damage happen. Nosset Beach, Cape Cod, September 1840. Wrapped in a newly wedded embrace, they watched him scuttle up the beach an old man in ragged pantaloons, poking and prodding the tidal arc of kelp and flotsam. What's he looking for, asked the man. He looks like a crab, said she. The seeker drew closer and spoke. You fancy this strand of beach? It's just a fine sight for a summer's ramble through the dunes and sawgrass. Life's wind whipped here. Severe, sparse, but lovely, today. He offered a gap-toothed smile. Won't look like this comes October. The storms are coming, and soon this will be littered with the bones of beasts, ships, bodies, and dreams that get cast up when men and wave and land collide. He paused. I see your doubt. <laughs> I know you'll forget it or dismiss it. And he waved a cautionary finger. But you will recall it when the winds blow and the gulls fly inland seeking shelter. You'll shiver in your bed and tell yourself, it's just a storm. But you're wrong. It's the anger of the ancient gods, the forgotten ones, unprayed to but present. The sea, that's Poseidon, roaring, ravishing, assaulting Gaia, the Earth Mother, with his obsessive hunger to destroy. His timing is perfect. Wind and wave grow terrible as the tides swell with the pull of the month's cursed moon. Defiant, the Earth Mother laughs, mocking his fury, even as she feels her fragile holdings succumbing to the sea, her sculpted shores eaten by watery jaws. She knows he'll win this battle. He may erase the cape. Time and tide will tell, but she feels no urgency. After all, the antagonists, like war, are immortal, eternal. And what of us, the fragile humans living on the shore, 
Most will whimper and cry about the little they lost while cursing the fates with useless fury. But me? <laughs> he laughed. I'll be on the beach, opening the gifts the sea gods have left me. Could be the timbers for a house, cast off clothing, the ribs of a whale. They'll be good pickings. Good pickings? You think me cruel, uncaring? You think the dead give a damn about their leavings? So I'll look through, sift through the wreckage, looking for something, something to brighten my tomorrows. Oh, I don't know the future I face. It may be bright, dark, long, short. But as sure as tide and time, it will be mine. It will be mine. Thank you. I, I really love that poem. And now for something just a little bit lighter. I'm also a songwriter. Now you might be able to tell that by the rhythm in here. This one's entitled Long John's on the Line. Her neighbors told the season by the clothes upon her line. When it came to doing laundry, she had a special sign. Each and every Monday, well before the noon, her laundry was a flutter, white shining like the moon. The hanging didn't tell the hour. The town, town clock told them that. But what would be the season? How would they know that? Just look for Mr. Skivvies. That's the secret it will bring. Long johns fly in winter. Boxers dance in spring. That spot is empty in the summer, a puzzlement to all. But when the leaves turn yellow, it's jockeys in the fall. The town folk all look sad now. The lot has lost their grins. It won't be many Mondays till Long John's fly again. Thank you. The 2023 Poetic License Albany exhibit is currently on display through the month of December at the Honest Weight Food Co-op on Waterfleet Avenue in Albany. Tonight at the Honest Weight Food Co-op, Dan Wilcox is hosting the final Poetic License Albany poetry reading and open mic of the year, giving writers and artists an opportunity to share their work with the community. For more information on the Poetic License Albany project, to see the artwork, and to read the poems that inspired it, go to PoeticLicenseAlbany.com. For Mohawk Hudson Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. I assume by tonight that was Tuesday night, so Wednesday morning listeners. Um, just note of that. And we have Talking with Poets segments by Tom Francis for Hudson Mohawk Magazine at this time every week. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Kayla McPherson, also your engineer for tonight. We want to thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Segment producers Mark Dunley, Bria Barthel, Tom Francis, Dulcinea Diggs, and of course your co-hosts, Sina Bazilahiki and me, Kayla McPherson. 
We want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to HMM at mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate you listening. Thanks, everyone, and have a wonderful day. New York.